Every year, hundreds of thousands of new students flood into colleges across the nation, but very few of them are aware of what might happen if they were sexually assaulted and what procedures they would have to go through. Today, I'm here with a novelist, Allison Leota, and her book, The Last Good Girl, which explores just such a case. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Lee. So, Allison, we first at The Journal became acquainted with you through your blog, The Primetime Crime Review. Right. Uh, can you tell people a little bit about your own background and how you started to write more publicly? Sure. I was a federal prosecutor in D.C. for 12 years. Most of that time I did sex crimes, domestic violence, and crimes against children in Washington, D.C.'s uh, Superior Court. Well, I actually started the blog after I became a novelist, but I've always been addicted to those crime dramas. I love them and I hate them. Since I became a lawyer, I you know, just wanted to throw popcorn at the TV whenever they get something wrong. So I found that uh, actually blogging about it was a lot more productive. I'd, I'd write about what they're getting right and wrong from my perspective as a real trial attorney. And that was a lot of fun and had a great following. Thanks to you guys, really. Thanks, ABA Journal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we weren't searching for that, but we'll take it. Um, So you've been writing about a character called Anna Curtis for the last five books. The Last Good Girl is the fifth in this series. Allison, Anna has a similar background to yours in many ways. Can you talk about how you came up with this character and what it's been like to take her on these journeys over five different books? Sure. Well, Anna is a federal sex crimes prosecutor, just the same job that I had in Washington, D.C., and uh, she handles a lot of cases that are similar to cases that I handled. She is different than me, though. I realized as I started writing the book that she needed to have a much different background. First of all, she's younger than me. She's single. I'm a soccer mom. I'm constantly trying to get the kids out the door and get their shoes on them. It seems to take up half my day. But Anna doesn't have those problems. She's young. She's got a complicated romantic life, which I think makes for uh, a lot of fun in novels. And uh, she's trying to juggle being young and single in D.C. while also handling these incredibly difficult and sometimes just heart-wrenching crimes that she's prosecuting. So I wrote my first book, Law of Attraction, kind of in the spaces between my my real life being in AUSA and sleeping. And then Simon & Schuster, to my surprise, thought it was the beginning of a series. So I have been writing about her. We've been uh, working with each other, I guess you'd say, ever since. So in this latest book, um, I guess if each book kind of has a theme, in a previous episode, we were able to talk to Linda Ferristein about her series. And she has actually continued her Alice Cooper series over 18 books now. I believe the 18th is about to be released. Do you foresee following Anna that long and over that many adventures? I don't I don't know. I, I've put Anna through quite a bit the last several years. You know, they say a good author puts her protagonist up on a tree and throws stones at her for, and, you know, you see how they react. And I, I really have done that with Anna. I think she could probably use a little bit of a break from me. So we'll see. It's been wonderful to see the interest, to see just that people want to hear more and more about what's going on with her life and what's her next step. So I'll have to balance off that interest with uh, what I'm interested in, which is probably doing something nonfiction next. Well, the major topic that she's dealing with is something that's also very much in the news right now, which is addressing sexual assault on campus. Um, Without giving any spoilers for those of our listeners who want to pick up the book later, could you describe the plot a little bit and how Anna comes to be dealing with this issue? 
This young woman named Emily Shapiro disappears from a college campus, a fictional college campus named Tower University. And Anna's put in charge of the investigation to find her, hopefully find her alive. Very soon realizes that Emily had been sexually assaulted during her first week as a college freshman. And as she kind of digs into who might have done something to her, realizes that the college campus itself, as well as Emily's family, her father is the president of the campus, are hiding a lot of secrets. And Anna has to delve through all of these in order to figure out what happened to the girl. It's an exploration of her family life and also the issue of how college campuses are handling sex assaults. How familiar with campus discipline systems were you prior to writing this book? What did you have to do to find out more about what goes on at the average college campus when a student reports that they've been sexually assaulted? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because there really are two separate systems that often are working in tandem and not with each other at all. There's, of course, the criminal justice system where a you know, survivor reports his or her sexual assault to the police and it goes to, to the prosecutor's office, it goes to trial. That is a very public system. Obviously, um, it, you know, it's open. The courtrooms are open. Everything that happens in it is Googleable later. And there's jail time at the end of it if there's a conviction. But within the college system, it's a private disciplinary function. It's a system of trying to find the guy who did it. Usually it's a guy. And hold him accountable, but in an academic sense, the kind of highest form of punishment is an expulsion. There can be other kind of academic reprimands. But I think a lot of survivors don't realize that when they report to the campus, it does not necessarily get reported to the police. So cases that I had involving campus sex assaults may not have had a college disciplinary hearing going on at the same time. One of the reasons that's been brought up for having a separate campus disciplinary system has been the lag time of the criminal justice system between when a crime is reported and when it's brought to trial. Do you see that as a continuing need? What changes do you think would need to be made to the campus disciplinary system to best achieve justice for students in general? Right. Well, there are different rules governing both, obviously. The most important rule governing the campuses is Title IX, which, you know, in the 70s and 80s was considered like something for sports. You know, it was you you had to have a girls volleyball team. If there was a boys football team, you had to have equal sports opportunities for the girls as for the boys. But it's also been interpreted to mean that colleges need to make sure that there isn't a harassing atmosphere on campus. And certainly in an atmosphere where the statistics today are one in five girls and five percent of the boys who start off at campus will be sexually assaulted before they leave. So that is certainly an atmosphere of harassment. Colleges have to take steps to stop it. So uh, it's not so much about what's happening in the criminal justice system as the colleges, if they want to receive federal funds, they must set up a disciplinary process, a process to try to stop this from happening on their campuses. But the problem is, a couple of problems. One problem is the colleges are just, they have not historically been set up to do this. They don't really know how to do it. And uh, the, the other problem is the incentives. There is really very little incentive for the college to find predators on their campuses. And in fact, quite the opposite. Colleges have historically kind of gone out of their way to not find the, you know, sexual assaults because then they have to publicize the numbers and that can make applications go down. There's definitely a deep-seated desire to not have sexual assaults on campuses and, and sometimes that means not finding them. 
I found one of the most heartrending parts of the book. This is not a spoiler because you find it out within the first chapter or two. Emma Shapiro, from the beginning of the book, is missing. And so the way you come to learn about her is excerpts from her video diary that she keeps as she goes through these processes and then finds out what punishment or rather lack of punishment her rapist will receive. And being the daughter of a university president, she realizes more so than maybe any students the kind of pull there is from university administrators to protect the interests of the university, perhaps over individual students. Mm-hmm. Um, were those segments difficult to write? How did you get in the head of Emma Shapiro? I'm just very interested in how you decided to introduce us to her via these video diary entries. Right. Well, she's missing in the book. We don't hear her voice, but what happened to her is so important. And I wanted to find a way, a vehicle for her story to be told while you're you know, going through this process with Anna of trying to find her. And I actually find where we are today in terms of how we tell our stories, our own personal stories, is such an interesting place because of technology. People tell their stories on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter and on YouTube. There's all sorts of amazing ways to document, to kind of have a daily diary that's just not that little pink clasped book that we used to keep in our bookshelves. So I I made uh, Emily have a vlog and I actually watched a lot of vlogs by college students myself, which is just a very interesting way to see kind of what it's like to be a young woman on campus. And I learned a lot about kind of the cadence of college girls today. They, they definitely speak in, in a way that I tried to capture in the vlogs. I also learned a lot of makeup tips. I think I'm probably better at applying eyeshadow now because of all the time I spent on those vlogs. So useful in multiple ways. Yes. So as a novelist, you have to make a story gripping and interesting and entertaining and bring something new and exciting and, and cliffhangers and, and all of this, especially in the genre you're writing in, legal thrillers. Mm-hmm. So... You know, how do you balance and what is the responsibility of pop culture like books, like movies, like TV shows to portray the actual processes the way that they are in real life and still tell an entertaining and gripping story? There must be a lot of temptation to ramp up or exaggerate. Do you think that pop culture like books, like movies, like TV shows have a responsibility to reflect accurately what actually goes on in cases like these. Yeah, as a prosecutor, it was very frustrating to watch these TV crime dramas where they would have these incredible magic crime-fighting technologies that would solve their crimes. And to watch it knowing that the next time I had a jury trial, the jury would expect exactly that to have happened, this you know, incredible black light that could be waved over the crime scene and you could find the farm where the organic mushrooms found in the victim's stomach had been grown in Argentina. You know, it was just crazy sorts of things. And, and, you know, we called it the CSI effect. The jurors would expect that. And, you know, what you found, DNA is great. DNA is probably the number one technology that has been just a game changer. But a, a lot of times, especially with sex crimes, it's not about just the fact that something happened, but who said what was consent given is the number one issue. And for that, you need to find out, you know, what was the relationship between the parties. And for that, a lot of times the best 
um, investigative work is done by a detective with a notepad and some people skills. So uh, as a prosecutor, you're always trying to get the jury's expectations in line with the reality of what they're going to hear in the case. In my stories, when I write my books, my first job is to entertain. you got to keep the pages flowing and turning. There has to be something that delights or horrifies or interests the reader on, on each and every page, certainly in each and every chapter. And I really strive for that. But I also do feel a responsibility to keep it real. That's what I bring to the table because I was there, because I talk to people who are there and, um, and I can do that. I do think that the process, the criminal justice process is just fascinating in itself. What it is, is just fascinating. It doesn't need to be embellished. What I do try to do is just leave out the boring parts. If, if there's a scene where somebody's just pouring over Westlaw for three hours, I'm not going to write that scene. We can montage that. Yeah. Yeah, Um, exactly. I noticed that you went to Harvard Law School for your JD. And in the past few weeks, it's really been in the news that Harvard University is attempting to penalize and put an end to single gender social groups. Now, fraternities were a big plot line in The Last Good Girl. Have you followed this at all? Do you have any feelings about this? A little bit. I, I mean, I think that the Greek system generally has many problems. I'm not sure the single sex clubs, actually, I'm not sure that I would put an end to the single sex clubs and force them to take people from the opposite gender. I, I actually, um, I'm not sure that that's the answer. But the, the statistics about fraternities, Greek life generally is are kind of shocking. Boys who join fraternities are 300% more likely to rape than boys who don't. So I think boys in groups generally uh, make worse decisions than boys by themselves. I also think the hazing process teaches boys to wield power in a particularly cruel way, to be very cruel about it when they have power. So um, I, I think it's certainly worth thinking about when we formulate our policies about Greek life and college campuses. That said, fraternities are so deeply entrenched in college life, so powerful, it's going to be an uphill battle to to significantly change how they operate. So Allison, what's next for you? Obviously, this book just came out, but you mentioned that you thought about taking on a nonfiction project. Do you have any ideas about what we can expect from you in the future? Well, I uh, obviously am running around now trying to sell The Last Good Girl. And when that stops, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to binge watch some things on on Netflix because I I have not uh, had a chance to do that in a long time. And then uh, I need to find the right story. And I'm not sure what that story is, but I would like to maybe take on some true crime, whether it's something that happened in the 1800s or something that's happening today, whether it's, you know, Bill Cosby or, you know, something, you know, people who were accused of being witches uh, in early America. I'm not sure. So if you hear something good, Lee, let me know. I'll pass it on. Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Modern Law Library with our guest, Allison Leota, and her new book, The Last Good Girl.